The passage today comes from John 8, verses 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray. God, thank you for making a way for us to be free. I pray that we would be a people that abide in your word and love the truth. Open our hearts this morning to hear your word and know that you lo- uh, to know and love you deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus... And this passage is at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's eight days total, seven plus one, where there's a big religious celebration. He's in Jerusalem, and so, you know, it's a big crowd, uh, religiously oriented. You know, they did it at the time of harvest, um, but they were actually commemorating God's deliverance from Egypt. So it's, it's on their minds, um, you know, religious celebration, exuberance, and all of that. And so in this setting, keep in mind that by the time we get here, Jesus is a public figure. Um, John the Baptist had pointed to him as the one. Jesus has been talking about this. He's been teaching about it. And he's demonstrated it through these big, powerful signs like feeding the 5,000 or uh, doing these miracles of healing someone at the point of death or uh, somebody who, you know, for 38 years had never been able to walk. And so he's showing, he's demonstrating who he is, a public figure, and everyone has thoughts. Is it a good guy, bad guy, uh, maybe the Messiah we've been waiting for all these centuries? And so it's in this situation that Jesus is having this conversation and he's talking about himself. Not just because people want to know, but because they need to know, and you know, also, you've got some people behind the scenes uh, maliciously scheming to know, and with it comes controversy. Sometimes the truth does that. Sometimes the most controversial thing you can do is tell the truth. Anyway, the flow of the passage in, in verses 31 through 38 looks something like this. It's a dialogue between Jesus and the people. So it looks like, a little chiastic uh, representation here, it looks like Jesus, the people, Jesus. Okay? Jesus, the people, Jesus. Jesus starts off in verses 31 and 32, how to be free. And the people respond in verse 33, um, what, they, what they show is a failure to appreciate their lack of freedom. And then Jesus, again, how to be free. I think in your handout it says how to be free again. Not how to be free a second time, again, reinforcing how to be free, but it doesn't look like you will. So see the flow? Jesus, how to be free, 31 and 32. The people respond, uh, showing their, uh, their failure to appreciate their lack of freedom. And in verses 34 through 38, Jesus doubles down again. How to be free, but it looks like he won't be. 
So Jesus tells them how to be free. He says it in verses 31 through 32, if they abide in his word, they really are his disciples and they'll know the truth and that truth will set them free. It's interesting, isn't it? That what they, and by extension, you and I need more than anything else is the truth. Out of everything that you could have, out of everything that you desperately need, the thing you need the most is the truth. And nobody gets better without the truth. Even in lesser things, if you think about it, in these lesser areas, if you are, I mean, to put it bluntly, if you're somebody who's lazy or mean or selfish uh, or a liar, before you're ever going to get better, you have to come to grips with that. You know, before it's ever going to improve for you, uh, one of the things that you have to do is face up to, oh, I'm a liar, or I'm mean, or I'm selfish, or I'm lazy. And the truth about yourself has to emerge. Before you'll be free, the excuses and the shifting the blame and all of that have to drop like, her, uh, like curtains, hiding what's really going on there. And the truth has to happen to you before you'll ever get better. And Jesus is here talking, make no mistake about this, talking not about these lesser things about you, but these ultimate things about you and about ultimate freedom. And no one gets better without the truth. Not just these little insights along the way, but ultimate freedom. Nobody's ultimately going to get better without this ultimate truth that comes through him. Um, the people don't hear this. Verse 33 is good news. See how they respond? We're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. How, can, how is it that you say you can set us free? They don't think they need what Jesus is saying. Uh, they don't think they need Jesus and they don't want to. It looks like Jesus' words hurt their pride. Uh, he has a tendency to do that to the person who's very full of himself. You know, somebody who's self-obsessed, uh, Jesus is going to get on your nerves uh, but like, I mean, again, but it's because of the truth, right? Uh, to, to the person who looks in the mirror every morning and falls, all and falls in love all over again, uh, Jesus is going to create some dissonance inside of you. And they're offended at the idea that Jesus would say what he just did to people like them. Maybe he doesn't know who they are. I mean, we, uh, you know, sort of theology 101, Jesus. And so what they say to him is, we are children of Abraham. And what they mean by that is thus, the innest of the inn, you know, the freest of the free. You're talking to us about this. We don't get it. We, we are there. What you're offering us is, it's like offering, you know, the richest person in the world. I don't know who that is, but you know the names, whether it's, you know, uh, an electric car company or, or a shipping and goods company or whoever, whoever comes to your mind. And it's like, listen, I'm going to offer you more money than you can ever spend. And that person goes, uh, there, right? I don't need that. And, uh, and what Jesus does is he offers them freedom, and they say, uh, there, don't need that. Uh, Jesus insists at the end of the passage, 34 through 38, that they're missing it. They, re they really don't understand who they are and who he is and that they're not in the way they think they're in. You can see the, 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 the people and Jesus see their situation completely differently. You, you notice the contrast. What do they say? They say they're children and Jesus says they're slaves. They think they're already in and Jesus says they need the one who's already in to get them in. Uh, they, they assume that they're God's people and Jesus points out that they're violating God's law. 
you know, right there, you're plotting to kill me, and that's a sign that you're probably not of God, that you take one of his big ten and you're like, eh, what's the diff? Uh, that they think it's up to them to determine if he's from God because they think they know God. And Jesus points out that he sees the Father and what he tells them is based on that. And that what they, you know, like, I see the Father and then what you hear from your Father, he says, is what you, you act out of that. That's, that's how you live and that's, that's what you base what you do on. He later identifies that Father in verse 44, their Father, as the devil. They're not going to take that well next, you know, just spoiler alert, by the time you get to the next passage, it's going to bug them. But they couldn't see this more differently. The way they see themselves, the way they see Jesus, the way they see God is one thing, and um, the reality is something else entirely. They think they have status. Um, Theme. This is the theme throughout these verses, 31 through 38. It's clearly Freedom. Uh, throughout the dialogue, we see them talk about freedom, and then this other thing is slavery, right? Intention with freedom, like free and not free. So everything's circling around this concept of freedom. Uh, that's what's at stake in this conversation, a person's ultimate freedom. So, so it lays out like this, right? I'm, I'm, I know I'm belaboring the point just so that we can see the flow, but Jesus says, I can make you free. And they say, we've never been enslaved, so how can you offer us freedom? And Jesus says, that's where you're wrong. You're actually a slave. Just look at your sin. A slave needs the right person to set him free. You can't do it yourself because you're a slave. And since you're a slave, i.e. not a free person, it's not up to you. You're going to need help. And the key to freedom, it turns out, is the truth. So let's talk about freedom. What we see are these insights that Jesus gives us about freedom, about ultimate freedom. Right? It's, by the way, the reason ultimate freedom is the only kind that really matters because if you have a kind of freedom that's so vulnerable that you'll be pulled right back into slavery again, then you're in trouble. It's right. It's not real, true freedom. So what Jesus talks about here is ultimate freedom, and we get three insights from him. You know, what can we learn from him about this ultimate freedom? And so here are his insights. We learn your need for it, uh, the way to it, and how to know you have it. Okay, ultimate freedom. Your need for it, the way to it, and how to know you have it. So the first one, your need for it. And in here, as we look at the passage, what we realize is Jesus is talking about the human condition. And he says it, what, what, we, what we realize is that every person has come under the power of sin. Every person has come under the power of the sin. Like you could see this in Romans, uh, for all have sinned. All short, short of the glory of God, or um, I don't know, you could just think about your past week and you could say, I have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Uh, but you can see it in this text too, right? So he starts off in verse 34, Jesus does, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, dot, 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 everyone who commits sin, everyone. Now, who might that include? Ding, 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 ding. Whoever does becomes its slave. You know this by practice. And the idea that Jesus is getting across is that a slave does what his master tells him to do. Why are they acting the way they are acting? Why, do, why does this person sin? Well, because he's doing what his master tells him to do. He's a slave to sin. That's the condition you're in. Sin is your master. It means it bosses you around. Yeah, uh, 
You know, there are people who will sometimes dispute this, um, but when it comes time to boss their sin, uh, they end up getting a black eye, right? They, they end up getting punched back. It tells you what to do. I, um, this, I mean this in a neutral way, all right? But I'm going to point out the colossal stupidity of a certain kind of action. And I'm not saying you're colossally stupid if this is you. What I'm saying is this is a description where you might be sucked into the vortex of colossal stupidity. So just, I mean, take it as a descriptor, not an accusation, okay? But oh, the colossal stupidity of the person who thinks, I'm going to sin, but I'm the master of my own sin. The habit, uh, the emotion, the reaction, the mindset, the language that's beyond you, it tells you it's, it's actually the opposite. It's how you know you have the mindset of a slave when you love the one who exploits you most and brutalizes you because it gives you a little in return. Like, you know, when, when you respond in your sin and you get something back, don't you? You get, you get something back. And so you get this little payoff and more dehumanization. You get this little payoff and more degradation. Everyone who practices sin becomes a slave to sin. It comes with consequences, it turns out. What what does sin do? Like when it owns you, when it masters you and it bosses you, what are the effects of it? I'm going to give you three. There are four in the passage. And I'd like to say there's a great reason for that. But the reason I put three in and not four is because the fourth insight came to me after I was done printing the handout. So there you go. Um, Here are the three. These big effects. What what does it mean that that sin is your master, that you're a slave uh, to sin? Uh, uh, number one, enslavement happens to you, right? Verse 34, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. It captures you and then owns you and then it rules you. It becomes your boss. Second thing, blindness. See this in verse 33. We're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How's it that you say you can offer us freedom? They don't even see it. Sin makes it so that you can't even see what's true. And then the third is a hostility to the truth. What do they do with this reality? Verses 37 and 38. Um, Yeah, you're offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. Uh, Why why kill him? Because his word. His his word is true, and they hate it. They despise it. Um, That's the effect of it. So whenever you're confronted with the truth, you tend to despise in your heart truth. You tend to resent it. It makes you so that you hate like what's true and good. You see it as an evil thing. This is how it plays out sometimes. And we've all experienced this. So just say this. Imagine real hard that you're sinning. Okay, I know. Stretch, right? You know, imagine real hard that you're sinning. And you know it, and you know it's wrong, and, and it starts to take over. Sin tends to do that, right? And it starts to take over, and maybe you think about kicking it out, uh, but you you can't do it. And so what you find yourself doing is you're sinning, and then you realize, okay, this is sin, and I need to do something about it. And so you're like, all right, I'm going to stop doing this. And it starts doing you, right? I mean, you you just don't. It just doesn't work. You find out you're not as powerful as you think you are. And so the longer you go, you go from, like, listen, I know this is sin, and I know it's creating big problems for me, but the longer you go, the more you, like, justify it, right? You make these little excuses, you defend it, you protect it, 
You know, because you don't want to lose this thing you've grown to love, and you don't want to admit your lack of power. You want to hide that, and because you don't want to deal with your shame. And then let's say a friend, like a real friend, comes up to you, and uh, they approach you about your sin, and what they say is basically all true. I mean, maybe they don't thread the needle, right? Maybe they're not just perfect with that, where maybe they didn't say it exactly right so that it would fix everything for you, but they approach you about it, and what they say is basically all true, right? This is sin, it's obvious, and what they tell you is something like this, listen, I love you, but you should stop, right? Repent, you need to turn around, you need to deal with this. What's your response? Well, you're, you're indignant. You know, you're like, you make, you make your case. I can't. You're like, you don't understand. I can't believe you said it to me that way. Right? Obviously, you don't get it. Um, how dare they? Who do they think they are? Do they have the place to say that to you? And it turns out that you get mad at them. Now, why? The person, that person who loves you had the audacity to tell you the truth. You're mad at the person, but deep down, you know it's a lie. It's not the person. It's like it's Jesus addressing your sin. Sin takes over. It enslaves, it blinds, it brainwashes you to make you hostile to the good and true. And since that's all of us, that's the human condition. So if you look at the passage before it ended, the, the one we did last time, verse 30, they're watching Jesus in action. They hear him. They know about the signs and all that. And it says they believed And so Jesus speaks, verse 31, to those who, quote-unquote, believed. And by the end of chapter 8, they want to stone him. Huh. Mark Johnston, a a pastor, commented on this passage. He says this, Salvation means nothing less than starting all over again. That's what slaves have to do. You need freedom because you're a slave to sin. That's the first insight. Your need for it. Second is the way to it. And here we see the power of Jesus for us. That's the insight. It's, it's Jesus who can free the slave to sin. It's not easy because the person can't do it himself. I mean, that's the problem with being a slave. You don't like, hey, listen, I'll get there when I get there. That's not the prerogative of a slave, right? Or uh, I don't think so. Not the prerogative of a slave. A slave can't decide to be free. It's not up to him. His life is someone else's decision. It's also not easy because it's not like there are a, a abundance of ways to be liberated. Well, there's like the Jesus way, and then there's, you know, this way, this way, and that way. That's not how it works. There's the Jesus way, and that's it. That's it. So notice how Jesus says a person gets set free. It's only him. Your freedom, early in the passage, he remarks on this, uh, comes through his word. Verses 31 and 32. The Jews who believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word... You're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's through his word, that, that message about himself, um, that you'll know the truth, and that frees you. Now, if, if you just did a little survey of John, Jesus has been calling people to believe in him, given his word. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I am, and this is how I'm going to act for you. So, for example, in the, in the all-familiar John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. On in 524, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then 629, if 
I can find 629, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him uh, whom he has sent. And then in verse 35 of chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's he driving down? I'm, I'm giving you my word. If you're going to be set free, you have to hear it and receive it. You got to believe. Right? This power is not yours. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to connect yourself to who I am. You're going to have to hear my invitation and come to me and believe. It's an invitation to come to him and believe and to have him carry you through. How's a person free? How's the slave to sin freed by Jesus? It's through his word. He's, got, he's given you an invitation to come to him. Later in the passage, though, verses 35 and 36, it's through his status. Let's read that again. It's an analogy here, right? He says he's talking about a house. He says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Slave and son. Well, one of the things that he points out here that's the obvious, the slave and the son have different statuses. The slave has a status in the house. And the son has a status in the house. And they're not the same. And when he talks about in the house, by analogy, what he's talking about is God's house, God's family. And, um, you know, the, the, the way they're adding this up, they, he's, you know, how, how are you in? And he's like, listen, you're in provisionally. And so you think you're, you, just because you're in proximately to the house, you think you're in the family. They think they're in because of their ethnicity. Right? Uh, through Abraham and Moses and Jacob, they, they think that makes them a lock. And Jesus says they're slaves. That, that, when Jesus says this, they, they object. Right? Verse 33 again, never been enslaved to anyone. It's a funny thing to say whenever you think about the history of the Jewish people. I mean, I just did a quick survey. I didn't like get my PhD in this, but um, Egypt, neighbors in Canaan, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome... Uh, presently, Rome. And on some level, they had been enslaved. It's hard to imagine any group they hadn't been enslaved to, right? I mean, that's their history. What that makes me think is that Jesus is going to tell them that next verse. He's talking about a spiritual slavery. That on some level, they get it. Like, what he's saying is, your religion isn't enough for you. And on some level, they get it, and that's what uh, offends them. Because the kind of slavery Jesus is talking about is the deepest kind, this slavery to sin. Whoever practices sin, verse 34, is a slave to sin. Oh, I I can't believe you're bringing this up. Who do you think you're talking to? And what he says in his analogy in verses 35 and 36 is it's the son who has the status. Who's in, in the house as a slave and a son. Who owns everything? Who's entitled to everything? Not the slave. You know, they as slaves are only there. And again, that's by analogy, right? They as slaves are only in provisionally. They don't own what's there. They, they don't, they're not entitled to the things in the house. But if they'll ever go from being there provisionally, and that's about to become obsolete, how are they going to come in permanently? Well, for that to happen, it's, it's got to be because the one who's already in draws them in, the son. Um, It's going to be because the son does it, and he changes their status, get this, by connecting it to his status, right? If you're going to be part of the ownership, then that's got to come from the one who already has ownership. 
Either way, it's Jesus and only Jesus who sets a person free. And in part because, and again, to answer that kind of narrowness claim, uh, objection that people have, salvation is hard. Uh, The reason it's Jesus and only Jesus is because he's the only one who has the ability, the credentials to do it. He's the only one who can accomplish it. So there's this contrast. You look at the first two points there, or those, those first two insights, and you go, oh, the human condition. And we're all under the power of sin. And that means we're enslaved and blind and hostile to the truth. And then Jesus comes in and we see the power of Jesus. How do you get your way to freedom? What does he do? He reverses all of that. Freedom, not slavery. The light comes on, right? I'm the light of the world. They can see and the truth sets them free. Um, Hostile to the truth. Instead of rejecting it, they receive it. And here's the fourth uh, thing that's the effect of sin, is being outside the family. And the son draws them in and makes them part of the family. I mean, he reverses all of that. You get to see that in the power of Jesus. Here's the third insight. It's how to know you have it. So there's the, your need for it. Everybody's under the power of sin. Um, your way to it. It's through Jesus and only Jesus. We get to see the power of Jesus for us. And then the third thing is uh, how to know you have it. And what we find here is a test for authentic faith. There's a commentator I like. He's, he's passed away now. He's from, he was from Australia. A guy named Leon Morris. And he pointed out in uh, these verses, he described it this way. Because you get to see this juxtaposition between verse 30 and verse 31. They, they hear and see Jesus in action. And so they quote unquote believe. And verse 31, Jesus addresses those who believe. And by the end of the chapter, they want to like stone the guy they quote-unquote believe in, right? And Leon Morris put it this way. Jesus' words here addressed to those who believe and yet don't believe. Jesus is talking here to people who believe and yet don't believe, and you don't want to be that, the person who believes and yet doesn't believe. The person who goes, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I get it, I need, I need, but, uh, but no, it's a big deal because a person, you know, if you want to test for authentic faith, like, like how do I know that my faith is genuine? A person is saved by grace through faith. And what Jesus is doing here is going, oh, listen, I'm going to give you a way to ascertain that yours is genuine and not false. How do you know your faith is genuine? Faith in Jesus is the dividing line between being set free from your sin or just remaining under the tyranny of sin as its slave. So how do you know that yours is not a false faith? Like I said, we see it played out in the text. Verse 30, many believed. Oh, yeah, Jesus has done these signs. Look how he stands up to the leaders. So they believe. And as soon as he disappoints them, they unbelieve, right? He addresses those, it says in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him. And he's like, how do you know? Kind of looks like they have believed. How do you know? If you dot, dot, dot. Now, why does Jesus do this? So you can know. So he says here, if you're an engineer, and I know there's at least one of you out there this morning, okay? So if you're an engineer in the audience, and you notice, yeah, nobody ever goes, is there an engineer in the house? But, but I'm just saying yours is a good work, but it's a slow work, okay? But I just want to point out that the Lord Jesus loves you because he uses an engineer's love language. If you X, then you will truly be my disciples, right? So there's this kind of syllogistic response. If only there were numbers here, you'd just be all in, right? But he's using your your love language here. If you X, 
you're truly my disciples, he says. He lays it out so that you can see if you're truly his disciples. Now, he does this because Jesus knows, having all the insight, that there are dinos out there, right? Disciples in name only. And he wants to give you an acid test to smoke that out. So Jesus is not accepting their quote-unquote belief as it is. What he's going to do is he's going to say something that's either going to deepen it or sift them and sort them out of their misunderstanding. Cool thing here. Read it again. Verse 31 and then into verse 32. If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In language, Greek, truly and truth are connected. Um, same root word, as in your discipleship is shown in your connection. Are you truly a disciple? You see this connection to the truth. Truly a disciple, you show the truth in your hope. Same root word. So how do you know? Here's the key, verse 31. You abide. You abide in his word. You don't just believe it and let it go. The word means to remain there, to continue in it, to live there. So Jesus sets it up like, if you continue, uh, you are a true disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And just from another angle, we'll, we'll get to a more direct look at the passage itself, but just from another angle, how should they already know that their faith in Jesus is the wrong kind? Isn't that too subjective uh, of me to ask? Not really, because here's how you know, and they should know. Because it's on their terms rather than the Messiah's. It's on their terms rather than the Master's. Question. Do you want Jesus, but only on your terms? Do you want the benefits, but not the reality? Um, like, I, I, the holdup for a lot of people is that, you, you know, getting the benefits of salvation, but being inconvenienced with Jesus hassling you about his lordship, you know, lords tend to, to do that, and the Lord will tend to do that. So, again, verse 30, they believe. After a few words from Jesus, they want to kill him. The kind of freedom they need only comes through accepting the truth they refuse to see and humbling themselves by coming under the status of the one they refuse to receive. See this all the time in, in, in people from a spiritual existential take. They believe... They need Jesus, they know that, but when he gets inconvenient, like the Lord is prone to do, they want him out of the way, which is another way of wanting to kill him. Now why? Well, only because he's told you the truth, and the truth gets in the way of the part of the slavery you want to keep. Are you happy to be free? Or are you longing for Egypt? You're like, ah, oh, it's too hard. The land of freedom, it's, it's hard. It's too hard. If only we could go back, you know, like to full pots and, and security, you know, those little things that sin gives you and full pots and security and being brutalized and exploited and dehumanized, you know, if only. How do you know, though, back to the, the passage direct on, how, how do you know that you are truly Jesus' disciple? If you abide in my word, he says, you continue there. You remain there. You don't just say an initial superficial yes to Jesus. It's that there's no willingness to abandon Jesus' teaching. Because once you become a person of truth, you don't exchange that for less than truth. Good time, bad time. Maybe you're in the best season of your life. And the hope is still the hope. Or maybe you're in the worst season of your life. 
and the hope is still a hope. You won't abandon his teaching when it gets clarified uh, for you with more of what it means. You know, listen, some people, they'll, they, they tend to kind of look back and doubt, like, oh, I was just so immature when I believed. What do you think that newborn people are? Right? Like, like, oh, I just didn't get everything. Right. That, that comes with being newborn, right? You have to develop and grow. The, the Bible talks about this all the time, that you have to deepen and grow and mature and, and all of this. But they, they, send, they tend to think that, uh, like, oh, I just get it. Like, it's a magic wand. You won't abandon his teaching when it gets clarified uh, for you with more of what it means. What you'll do instead of abandoning it, it, you will continue in it. All those things you didn't know before, you'll just absorb and you'll build on them. So you continue with this word to hear it, to receive it, to obey it, to hold it, to meditate on it, to walk in it, to submit to him, to praise. In short, truth is not your enemy. Uh, you don't put off the one who can give you life. You take that word from him and believe, and then you continue. Your faith in Jesus does not stop after that initial response. It deepens. It grows. It lasts. You might limp in seasons, um, but the more you experience him, the, the more you know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. That's the test of authentic faith. That's how you know. Jesus comes into your life, and maybe you look better or worse in some seasons because there is refinement. you got a long way to go, and so do I. Jesus is faithful to work that in each of us, but you continue. As Jesus says, how, how, you're truly my disciples, what, if you abide in my word. All right. Now, how do you know, if Jesus gives these three insights into ultimate freedom, how, how do you know that you get it? Like, are they yours? Have you appropriated this for yourself? Let me give you three questions, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to uh, make those in line with the three insights that Jesus gave us. So how do you know that you have this insight into freedom that it's yours? Three questions. Uh, beside that first insight, um, here's the question. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a slave in need of liberation? You see that on your own you're a person in the dark. Like you don't have a reality. You're, you're a slave, a person hostile to the truth. Do you see that you're a person who needs help? I just want you to know if you're frustrated by that reality, you're not alone in this room. That speaks to every single person in the room. Are you aware of that? Have you come to grips with that? Are you accepting that? That on your own you stand condemned before God because of who God is and who you are? Second question beside that second insight, right? The way to liberation. How do you see Jesus? Is Jesus and Jesus alone the one who has the power to give you freedom? Is he the truth? Is he the one who tells you the truth, who tells you what you need to know? Is he the son who can set you free, who's, who can give you the status to come under him based on who he is and what he's done for you so that he can connect you and make you family? Number three, what are you doing with Jesus' word? Do you hear his word and put your hope there? Is that where you hope? This is a comfort, again, to come back to this, to the person who struggles with security. I get this sometimes from people, you know, my line of work, they're like particular questions sometimes that crop up. And I think part of it's out of our tradition uh, that will come up more pronounced in, say, Baptist life than, than in some other lives uh, or strains. Um, and it's this, I'm, I'm struggling with my salvation. And, and you know, if I, if I really believed... And I just want you to know that that's a misunderstanding of the Bible. 
Because again, to go back to that newborn concept, like the, the newborn baby is not awake to all of reality and has not appropriated all of that reality. The sign of life is that you keep living. The sign of life is that you grow and mature. And so whenever the person asks that, my response typically is, well, do you trust them now? Like, it's, the test isn't going back to some experience and going, how powerful was that? The test is, do you trust them now? I mean, that's good evidence because that's where Jesus told you to look. If you abide in my word, if you continue, where are you now versus where you were 15 years ago? You still believe? I mean, this, by the way, this isn't set up as a condition, um, as though you have to abide in his word to become his disciple. Like, this isn't how you get saved. Like, like Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to call you to abide. Maybe one of these days, we'll see. Maybe we can work something out and you can become a disciple. Mm -mm. No, he, he doesn't set it up as a condition in your mind. He sets it up as a lamp in your mind. So you can know. So you can know you're truly his disciple. How? Because his word is your hope and you hold on to it. What's your season? Is it good? Well, are you pursuing idolatry or is your hope firmly in Jesus? Is your season bad? Are you despair? Are you constantly wrestling for control? Or is your hope firmly in Jesus? Is Jesus your hope in spite of how weak you feel? It's also an encouragement, I think, uh, to every disciple, regardless of whether you struggle with that question. Because we all stumble. Because when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And the question to close is this. Do you want free? Do you want to be free? Or, in, you know, enslavement, blindness, hostility to the truth, outside the realm of God, is that good enough for you? What are you doing with Jesus' word? Verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I pray you'll know freedom. Let's pray. God, Jesus is so great. Uh, truth embodied, and truth accomplished, and freedom accomplished. May we celebrate his light, come into it, bask in it, and share it with the world. Uh, who desperately needs him, and may you be glorified through all of it. So would you strengthen your saints and, uh, and draw people to believe in Jesus even now. He's worthy. Uh, may they know life and freedom. May we all walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.